You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is How to Think About Science in the Age of Evolution, Episode 2, with Thomas Bentley. Welcome back to How to Think About Science in the Age of Evolution. My name is Thomas Bentley, and I hope that you enjoyed our last series as we looked at why it matters, what you think about science in the age of evolution, and the things you need to know. And now we're going to continue on in the four things that you need to know and the one thing you need to do. So let's go to our program right now. Okay, in this next one, we're going to look at the third thing you need to know about science in the age of evolution. First, we know that science is not the truth. We know that science is like the circus, and the ringmaster in the circus, the one that controls the show, is this thing called the paradigm. The paradigm in current science is naturalistic philosophy when it comes to origins. But now we need to look at the number three. The third thing you need to know about science in the age of evolution is the fact that science is about power. You know, I remember uh, hearing a story from the movie Fiddler on the Roof where they had two men having a, basically a disagreement over a topic. And there was a group listening in, and one man says, he basically tells his explanation, and it's very, very good explanation. And one of the people listening goes, hmm, you're right. And then the second man in this d disagreement tells his part of the story, and again, it was very, very good. And the same man goes, hmm, you're right. And then finally, a third person watching the whole thing says, wait a minute, they can't both be right. And he says, hmm, you're right. And so the question is, when two paradigms are different, or when one paradigm shifts to another paradigm, how do you know who's right? Well, the answer to that is found in Dr. Kuhn's book, it's science, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, when he tells us this. The one that's right is when paradigms change, the one that's considered right is the one that gets power. Simple as that. The one that's considered right is the one that gets power. And here's how he talks about it. He says, scientific revolutions are like political revolutions that aim to change political institutions in ways that those institutions themselves prohibit. Their success, therefore, necessitates the partial relinquishment of one set of institutions in favor of another. And in other words, what he's saying is when paradigms change, when there's a decision going on between two paradigms that are at the same time being talked about in science, the one that's right, the change that happens is almost like a political revolution, like a government that goes from a democracy to communism. You can tell that when that happens, there'll be a tremendous amount of change that will take place. And this is what he talks about when he says paradigms change is about power because it's like a revolution that happens. And I thought, in order to explain this to you so that you could actually experience it for yourself, I would like to share with you a modern example of a paradigm change that happened in science that's happening right now. And so while we watch this, I want to put this up here. I want to put a cautionary note in front of you, okay? It's a big caution sign because I, I don't want any frowny faces at me. I don't want anybody throwing anything out there because... I want you to realize that I'm only showing you these things so that you can see how paradigms change and how the paradigm that gets power is the correct one. I'm not endorsing anything that I'm sharing with you right here, okay? So let's take a look. Are you ready? Here you go. Here's the paradigm. About 20 years ago in the science of climatology, 
there was a new paradigm that came on the scene. It was a paradigm that, was, that came directly out of the United Nations in something called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And of course, it's become known as global warming. And here's how it works. Human-produced CO2 that comes from manufacturing, from driving cars and trucks and creating electricity is directly responsible for the heating of the planet. And if this increase in CO2 is not stopped, then the planet will overheat, resulting in damage and desolation and destruction. I mean, that's really kind of what the paradigm shift is all about. Well, there's another side. There's another set of scientists that talk about this. And this particular one, Dr. Ralph B. Alexander, who writes in the book Global Warming False Alarm, the bad science behind the United Nations' assertion that man-made CO2 causes global warming, he writes this. Contrary to popular opinion, however, the major greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is not CO2, but water vapor, H2O. Water vapor accounts for about 70% of the Earth's natural greenhouse effect, and water droplets in the clouds another 20%, while CO2 contributes only a small percentage, between 4 and 8%. And so here's a scientist telling us, wait a minute, stop. We want our planet to be warm, and the major greenhouse gas is not CO2, it's water vapor, about 90%, over 90%. Water vapor. Okay, so let's see how this plays out then. What he writes is this. He says, the global warming debate hinges on this issue on how separate observations about the Earth's temperature and the CO2 content of the atmosphere should be interpreted. So here's the debate. Really, CO2, you know, if, if the CO2 goes up, the temperature should go up, basically, is what they're saying. Is that really happening? That's kind of the issue in the whole debate. And so then we look at the uh, methodology of the United Nations. And here's what he says. He says, the IPPC has inflated the data that the Earth is heating up by cherry-picking data from areas that are naturally warmer, excluding data from areas that are naturally colder. The IPPC has made up data that it uses to convince governments that CO2 is linked to warmer temperatures. This is that famous hockey stick graph. I don't know if you remember that, but they came out with this big hockey stick graph they used to make governments believe global warming was happening. And it was discovered that that was actually a fake. That was, that was the pit dow <laughs> hockey stick. In other words, it was actually a fake that they put together to convince governments. The IPPC ignores data that shows that temperatures in the distant past have gone down even though there was increased CO2, like is happening today. And so we have, with all this information, you now see this battle being played out by scientists in the news. It's happening in the news all the time. You see it. For example, the Mail Online. Global warming stopped 16 years ago, reveals Met Office. Report quietly released, and here's a chart to prove it. <laughs> so you can look to see that they said there's no global warming happening. And this one's very interesting. Does NASA data show that global warming is lost in space? I, I read this article, and it was kind of interesting. The, the person that was in charge was a Dr. Roy Spencer. It was a U.S. science team leader for the Advanced Microwave Scanning Radiometer that they were scanning, the, uh, making observations of the heat of our planet. And here's what he says. He says, the satellite observations suggest there is much more energy lost to space during and after warming than the climate models show. He said, the planet isn't heating up, in other words. So, you know, the, the old thought was that the Earth was like a greenhouse. And, you know, the, the more CO2 in there, the hotter it gets inside. But now science is saying, well, no, no, the, the greenhouse has louvers. And when it gets hot, it just opens up. It goes out into space. And the climate models, of course, don't have that in there. And so we see more and more of these things all the time. World Atlas 
ice loss claim exaggerated. You know, they, they exaggerate how much ice is lost in the Arctic. And in fact, there's more now than there was just previously. And of course, this one, the new scientist, has global warming ground to a halt? <laughs> or, or this one, 2008 was the year man-made global warming was disproved. And so you have all these things happening in science as sciences are battling these things, global warming, reasons why it might not actually exist, <laughs> coming out in the news. And finally this one, Obama orders the government to prepare for the impacts of global warming. Now let me ask you a question. The reason I showed this to you wasn't to convince you one way or the other, it was to show you how paradigms change in science. So let's take a look here. According to which one, to Dr. Kuhn now, and how science works, which one of these paradigms is correct? Which one is the right paradigm? Is it the, uh, the scientists that have the old paradigm that CO2 is not the big player that they say it is? Or is it the United Nations and their assertion that we really need to change everything we do because man-made global warming? Well, which one's right? Well, you guessed it. If you've been reading the book, you know it's the, the one that's right is the one that has power. The one who has a, a, the, the number of scientists that believe in it in the universities, in the government, and in the policies that govern society. The one that is right is the one that has power. And it's always been that way when it comes to paradigms in science. And there's implications to that. Uh, Dr. Ralph B. Alexander writes this. He says, both groups defend their views vehemently, although the debate, if it can be called a debate, is mostly conducted out of public sight. In the silent world of internet blogs, the public visible picture is quite different. Almost exclusively, the mainstream media presents the alarmist viewpoint alone and do so as if man-made global warming were an established fact, a belief that no longer needs to be questioned or debated. This standpoint has even been adopted by many professional scientific societies. See, once the paradigm gets power, then everything changes. And things change to the people who disagree. Listen to Dr. Richard Linston. He's a professor of atmospheric science at MIT. And this is from the book, Global Warming, False Alarm. He says, but there is a more sinister side to this feeding frenzy. Scientists who dissent from the alarmism have seen their grant funds disappear, their work derided, themselves libeled as industry stooges, scientific hacks, or worse. Consequently, lies about climate change gain credence even when they fly in the face of the science that is supposedly at their basis. And so now people who are no longer uh, agreeing to the popular paradigm are starting to be dismissed. But guess what? This is normal science. Dr. Kuhn writes, when in the development of a natural science, an individual or group first produces a synthesis able to attract most of the next generation's practitioners, the older school gradually disappears. It just is taken over by the revolution. And then he writes, in part, their disappearance is caused by their members' conversion to the new paradigm. But there's always some men who cling to one another of the older views, and they are simply read out of the profession, which thereafter ignores their work. The new paradigm implies a new, more rigid definition of the field. Those unwilling or unable to accommodate their work must proceed in isolation. And this is what happens in science. And of course, the new normal then gets reflected in the textbooks that all our children get to hear. He writes, science students accept theories on the authority of teacher and text, not because of evidence. What alternatives have they or what competence? 
The applications given in the text are not there as evidence, but because learning them is part of learning the paradigm at the base of current practice. If applications were set forth as evidence, then the very failure of texts to suggest alternative interpretations or to discuss problems for which scientists have failed to produce paradigm solutions would convict their authors of extreme bias. And this is just how it works in science today. You have what you have in those textbooks because that is the popular paradigm, the one that has power. And that's how science works. So let's just summarize. Science is about power. Never underestimate the importance of paradigms in science. A paradigm change happens through a revolution. The winning paradigm is the one that gets power, and the paradigm that gets power is the one that rules in science. That's the one that's considered science. And, and let me just share with you, this is why atheists like Richard Dawkins can stand up there on the bully pulpit of science and claim that only evolution is true because that's the paradigm that's popular in science. The one that has power is the one that determines what is considered scientific. Okay, let's move to the fourth thing you need to know in the age of evolution, and that is this. What was the paradigm that shifted as we moved into the age of evolution? What was the revolution that happened that brought us the age of evolution? In other words, in science. And here's what it is. Dr. Peter Godfrey Smith gives us the clue. In his book, Theory and Reality, Introduction to the Philosophy of Science, he says this, modern science is something that descends from specific people and places, and especially from a key collection of Europeans, including Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Descartes, Boyle, and Newton, all who lived in the 16th and 17th centuries. And what's interesting about all these people that spawned the modern science that we have today is that all of them were theists. The paradigm that we had, the old paradigm that brought us the age of modern science was the paradigm of theism. Scientists believed that science was possible because what they were looking at and they were exploring was part of a design and it wasn't a bunch of chaos. And so the founders of science were like modern theists. They believed that what they were doing was thinking God's thoughts after him. They saw in the design that it was possible to do science because they could basically reverse engineer what they were seeing because they knew it was created by an intelligent mind. That was the old paradigm in science. The new paradigm in science was this. It was atheism. Through naturalistic philosophy now, there is no God because nothing exists but nature itself. Science is seen as a study of purposeless, random processes. Don't miss that. Science now goes from studying design and reverse engineering it to basically looking at design and saying it's an accident. So the purpose behind science in the age of evolution is to explain the apparent design through chaos, through accident that it had to come about by some type of accident. This is essentially the paradigm that shifted. And the, the place where I would say probably sparked this shift or maybe uh, took what was happening in uh, the philosophies of the world and really pushed them forward was something that happened in France called the French Revolution. It was there in the French Revolution that the, the people who were in charge of that revolution that won in the revolution were atheists. And they de-Christianized the nation of France, and there they set up the worship of reason. And what I'm talking about by reason is I'm talking about human reason. And the reason that was happening, I believe, was because when you think about the, the dawn of these modern scientists, the scientists we just talked about that sparked the uh, modern science, people like Newton, 
The discoveries that they had made in uh, not only in gravity and in motion, these discoveries were really changing the way people saw their world. The scientists were able to apply these things to create progress, to, to help share things. And once you created progress, the, the pride in man began thinking that it's all my doing. Let me explain what I mean by that. This is kind of what scientific reason is like. Imagine for a moment that a, that a, a scientist or a man walks by and happens to see a tree that has apples on it. He pulls one of them off and he eats the apple, he enjoys the fruit, and then he just basically looks at these little black things and wonders what they are, throws them on the ground, and walks away. A few months later, he comes back to that spot, and what do you know? There's a little tree growing there. So he comes back about a year or two later, and sure enough, that tree's grown, and there's those little apples on them again, that, that fruit he enjoyed so much. So this time, he, he eats a little bit of it, and he tears it apart to get those little black things. He says, I wonder if that's what started it. So he goes and he does an experiment. He plants it in the ground and he waits to see. And sure enough, a plant grows and he waits long enough and sure enough, the fruit's there. Suddenly, he's discovered something that has been in the creation, in nature. And he says, whoa, I can now use this to make progress. So he says, I'm not going to be subject to having to go find this fruit anywhere. I'm going to go plant it here. And he plants vineyards. And then he takes other varieties of seeds and he plants those. And now he has progress. He can control his world. And that's essentially what we're talking about here. But notice one thing, that when he does that, he stands there at the end and he beats his chest. And he says, I did this. My amazing mind did this. I discovered this. Not one time does he ever say, wow, I wonder who made this in the first place. And that's the essence of scientific reason. It's almost like a scientist going into the how-to book of nature. And, and looking, opening it up and looking at the how-to of how things were done and then closing the book, going out and applying some of it, making progress and then saying, I did this. I am the reason. My magnificent brain is the reason why I will be like the Most High. It's all me. And that's the essence of scientific reason. Let me give you an example of that. Right after the French Revolution, exactly, there was a guy named Pierre S. Laplace, and he wrote a multi-volume work on celestial mechanics that was based on the work of Newton. And what he did was he applied Newtonian physics to show that the universe was stable. There was a thought back in those days that they were afraid, perhaps, that the universe would collapse in on itself once they discovered what Newton's uh, principles were like. But he showed, no, no, it's stable. And of course, that, of course, provided progress. Well, the story is told that one day, uh, Napoleon, who was the, the dictator at the time, invited Laplace to a dinner party that he had. And Laplace had given Napoleon this book. And I don't know whether Napoleon read it or not, but there was a little dialogue that's recorded in history where Napoleon said, so tell me, Monsieur Laplace, what is the place of God in your hypothesis? And Laplace's famous answer was, sire, I have not need for such a hypothesis. In other words, I have no need for God because I figured it out. I saw what the little seeds did in the apple. I made progress and now I don't need God. And that's the essence of scientific uh, atheism today. It's the essence of, of uh, scientific reason. And so uh, I think George Santayana, who's a contemporary philosopher, says it best in, when he says this. He says, the reason is man's imitation of divinity. And that's essentially what it is. It's man looking at what has been made, figuring out how something works, and then beating his chest, saying it was my magnificence 
that invented this all along, and never once looking at the designer who put it there in the first place. Well, here's what happens. Dr. Thomas Kuhn writes this. He says, paradigm change is like picking up the other end of the stick, a process that involves handling the same bundle of data as before, but placing them in a new system of relations with one another by giving them a different framework. And so what I'm saying is, is that nothing changed in the world as we went from uh, theism to atheism. The, the data is still there. The world is still there. The only thing that changed was now the people who have the power reinterpret the data to fit their paradigm. And that's exactly what happened in our world today. They just picked up the other end of the stick. I'll give you an example. In the, 19, in the 1840s, there was an atheist whose name was, uh, a, he was actually a British lawyer at one time, that he turned geologist. And the reason he did was he didn't like the way geologists were discussing uh, things like the Grand Canyon. They were saying that these were formed by catastrophe, these large things like that. He was like, whoa, 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 that's too close to the Bible. We don't want that. And so he came up with this idea of uniformitarianism, a theory that basically replaces any geology that could have been formed by catastrophe with explanations that take long, long ages. You know, the river uh, basically ran through there and over billions and billions of years it, it turned into the Grand Canyon. Of course, by the way, uh, geologists today are going back to catastrophism. And it's, it's happening right now. But this is what I'm talking about. This was how you pick up the other stick, you reinterpret the data. And here's another example. You know, Charles Darwin's in the 1860s, all he basically did was reinterpret man's place on the earth by claiming that humans were simply evolved beasts and nothing more. That was just a materialistic explanation that goes with naturalistic philosophy or atheism. And so here's the deal. In science today, the king is atheism. And he writes this, though the world does not change with the change in paradigm, the scientist afterwards works in a different world. And that's exactly what's happened today. The data didn't change, the world didn't change, just the people changed. Now the scientists work in a different world, and it's atheism. This is why uh, William B. Provine, a professor of biological sciences at Cornell University, could write this in, in this thing called Academy in January 1987, where he says, Religion is compatible with modern evolutionary biology, and indeed all of modern science, if the religion is effectively indistinguishable from atheism. The reason he says that is because he realizes that the paradigm that has captured power in science today is the paradigm of atheism. And so, the new normal in science is that when scientists look out into the world, they're looking at this object, which is the ground truth, the knowledge that we have in science today is always based upon the scientist's belief in atheism. And of course, the result of that is that we have to explain design with chaos. Take, for example, the universe again. You know, one of the things about our universe that's so interesting is that our universe is so finely tuned. There are four forces at work, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, gravitational force, and electromagnetic force. All of these are so finely aligned and tuned that if even a slight deviation would mean that life is impossible. How does that work? How did that come about? And scientists have been struggling for years to figure that out. One scientist talks about what they have been doing in a book called The Trouble with Physics, The Rise of String Theory, The Fall of a Science, and What Comes Next. His name is a physics um, person named Lee Smolin. And basically what has happened was, in order to explain 
design with chaos, they came up with this theory called string theory, which is really kind of a strange theory. I don't know if they really understand it, but it, my understanding is, is that it is a make-believe mathematical model of multiverses, you know, multiple dimensions that have make-believe uh, particles in them, and then almost like a slot machine, you just pull the handle of these uh, multiverses and jing, there it is, there's our universe. Wham, bam, there it is. You know, in other words, how do you explain this by chaos? And that's the word string theory. But listen to how he talks about it. I think this is a scientist that's kind of frustrated with physics. He writes, the story I will tell could be read by some as a tragedy. To put it bluntly and to give away the punchline, we have failed. We inherited a science, physics, that had been progressing so fast for so long that it was often taken as the model for how other kinds of science should be done. For more than two centuries until the present period, our understanding of the laws of nature expanded rapidly, but today, despite our best efforts, what we know for certain about these laws is no more than what we knew back in the 1970s. And the reason for that is string theory. He basically, in this whole book, is complaining about the fact that his entire career, string theory, was the popular paradigm, and guess what? It just doesn't work. He writes uh, in his book, he says, Dr. Daniel Frieden of the University of Chicago and Enrique Fermi Institute talking about string theory. He says, string theory cannot give any definite explanations of existing knowledge of the real world and cannot make any definite predictions. The reliability of string theory cannot be evaluated, much less established. String theory has no credibility as a candidate theory of physics, but it is one because it explains design with chaos. Simple as that. And so what we can see is that uh, as we are trying to discern what's really happening in the world, a paradigm can actually change things and make it so that we're, we're getting further and further and further away from what's really happening in our world today. But let me talk to you about where the paradigm leads. Remember, science is not value neutral. Everything in science has a result. And the result of having atheism as your paradigm is that it leads societies to paganism. And it's just an example, natural selection. Natural selection cannot cause one kind of life to motate into another, but yet they use that all the time as if it had magical powers. And so they ask us to worship nature when they do that, and that's what paganism is. But I'm going to share with you an example that I saw in the real world. It was actually a, a broadcast on BBC World Service, uh, a program called Heart and Soul, where they did a program called The Nation of Little Faith. And what they did was they went to the nation of Estonia, that is, the, is called the least religious country in the world. He says it's official. One in five in this Baltic country say that religion is important to their lives. In other words, it's the least religious country in the world. And so they're doing this story to find out why. And here's what they find out. They first they interview uh, one a girl who was still a Christian and was still going to church, and she says this. She thinks that part of the reason why so few people her age are interested in Christianity is the legacy of state atheism. She goes on to write, I think that parents who are against religion raise their children in the same spirit, and it comes from the Soviet times when people couldn't go to church, and my mom, for example, had to learn the basics of atheism in school. It was so much against her own thoughts. I think parents who are against churches, their children grow up in the same spirit. And then, she, then he goes ahead and interviews in this program and talk about what's really going on in their world today. Um, this Baltic country is probably one of the most pagan in the world, and they've replaced all of the original Christian 
type of celebrations with pagan ones. The number one in the country is something called Midsummer's Eve at one of the solstices. It says, Estonians who place more importance on their festival than going to church instead spend their time lighting bonfires, drinking, dancing, singing, and following pagan rituals. I mean, this is what they've replaced uh, Christianity with. And then it goes on to say this. They actually interview one of these pagans, and he says this, For you, are there any important beliefs which come from being on a day like today? Yeah, we are like pagan, and our God is sovereign in nature, and you must take time to sit down and listen. So in other words, where atheism leads is always paganism. Atheism and paganism are really buddies together because both of them are demanding that you worship nature. Science demands that you worship nature through their paradigms, like evolution. And of course, this is what happens in society as well. I love the end of the, this uh, particular radio program. He says, years of state atheism and a lack of religious education have left their mark on Estonia. And friends, it's going to happen to our world too, as the atheism of science permeates every aspect of your lives if you put science on a pedestal. Okay, so you have just learned why it matters. You've learned the four things you need to know. And now I'd like to conclude with the one thing you need to do in the age of evolution to keep the faith. And that's simply this. How in you, can you and your family deal with science in the age of evolution? Knowing all that I've just shared with you, here's the answer. You apply scientific principles, simple as that. You know, many of us who drive cars recognize that there's a need for an air filter in the car. If you did not have an air filter, then debris and gunk can get up into your engine and foul the engine and cause it to stop functioning. Well, friends, we need science in the real world. And as a result, we need to filter the pure air of science and just sort of get rid of the gunk that's in there. And you need to know how to do that. And guess what? Scientists tell you how to do it themselves. The first thing you need to do is to apply two types of filters. The first one is a sorting filter, and the second one is a time delay filter. Let me show you what I mean by that. Let's talk about a sorting filter. According to scientists, science comes in two flavors. We've talked about them. The first flavor is descriptive. Descriptive science basically is trying to use technology to determine what something is or how it works. The second kind of science is normative science. That science uses descriptive science, but it also adds all the paradigms that go along with uh, the popular paradigms, for example, of atheism in science today. And so what you find in the real world is you have these things mixed together. Dr. Peter Godfrey Smith writes this in Theory and Reality. He says, a distinction that is very important here is that the distinction between descriptive and normative theories. A descriptive theory is an attempt to describe what actually goes on or what something is like without making value judgments. A normative theory does make value judgments. It talks about what should go on or what things should be like. In other words, they involve the beliefs of the scientist as well. And so here's what you can do. When assessing general claims about science, it is a good principle to constantly ask, is this claim intended to be descriptive or normative or both? Now this is coming from a scientist himself. So when you're out there and you're listening to claims about science, you need to start sorting them. Okay, is that descriptive? Is that telling me how something really is? Or is that normative? Is that telling me how they'd like me to believe that that is? And there's just two kinds, and they're always happening all the time in science today. So when you hear a press release from somebody in science, the first thing you need to do is start sorting. What is that? Is that descriptive or is that normative? I'll give you a final exam if you'd like. One that I found that was very fascinating. 
This is a, uh, one of the technological entertainment and design conferences, TED conferences. It was held February 2012 at Long Beach, California. And this, the uh, TED organization is a nonprofit and they're primarily a very progressive group. And this one that I happened to see was very interesting. It was by a lady named Cheryl Hayashi, and she's a scientist, and she has a pre presentation called The Magnificence of Spider Silk. Now, if, if you do this as a final exam, you can just go online to YouTube and just put The Magnificence of Spider Silk in there, and you'll see her whole presentation. But as you do, I want you to apply sorting filters because what she does in the very beginning is she says, well, okay, here's spiders. They live all over the world. They're very diverse in different places. And then she immediately does this. She goes from descriptive nature of where spiders live to the evolutionary tree of life. And of course, you'll notice that there's no data on the evolutionary tree of life. And there doesn't have to be because if evolution is the popular paradigm, it's right whether it's true or not true. It just happens to be the popular paradigm in power. You don't have to have data. So evolutionists can stand there with no data and say, this evolved because that's the paradigm that's in power. See how this works? So she goes from descriptive to, to normative science, and then right back to descriptive science. She talks about spiders and the use of the many uh, purposes of spiders and how they use their silk. And then she moves to a fossil of a spider, which of course she doesn't explain how it could be millions of years old and still be the same spider. She doesn't have to because evolution's the paradigm. And then she jumps right back into descriptive ideas of spiders and their silk glands and how they work. And finally, she gets to the heart of her presentation, the most descriptive part of her science, where she describes the actual DNA coding of spider silk. But of course, she doesn't end there. Before she finishes or concludes her program, she goes right back to the evolutionary worldview and then she concludes with this statement, which is probably shocking if you, when you think about it. She says, the next time you see a spider web, please pause and look a little closer. You will be seeing one of the most high performance materials known to man. Think about that. How in the world could that have evolved if it's most higher performance material than anything we could make on our planet? Well, you can see how that works, friends. I'd like you to try this final uh, final exam, if you will, because I want to share with you that if you did not take this presentation, if you hadn't listened to what I've just shared with you, a young person who would watch her and her witty charm and her funny ways explain these things, they would be fascinated by all the descriptive science. And they might walk away from this presentation going, you know, that descriptive science proves to me that evolution's true. Because they you would not be able to sort that, wait a minute, what I'm hearing is descriptive science and normative science. I'm hearing science that's based on technology, and I'm hearing science that's based upon the beliefs of the scientist. And so it's very important to know how to sort and filter in these times. Okay, so the first one is a sorting filter. The second thing that I would recommend for you to do is to apply a time delay filter. You know, I, I, in my training as an engineer, my first degree was in systems engineering, and one of the things that I learned was that any system that doesn't have any feedback can come, become unstable. You get an impulse response, the system can go unstable. And so uh, imagine for a moment that your system is the worldview of the Bible. And suddenly, there's a media story on the news or in a magazine, and that media story causes an impulse 
in your life because it's claiming something that you, that science says it goes directly against your faith. And so what do you do? Do you go to unbelief? You do if you don't have a feedback. And let me share with you what we need to have. Uh, some stories like that. Think about the history of science past. All the media stories that came out talking about missing links from the Pit Dow Man, Nebraska Man, Java Man, Lucy, the Colanthoceptor, Oculoraptor, all of these were fossil fakes. But in their day, they were media stories that caused an impulse response in the lives of people who had the worldview of biblical faith. And some of them, it caused them to leave the faith. But they were all false. None of them were true. The same thing can happen today. And so what you need to do is you need to apply a time delay filter. My recommendation is to let that time delay filter be on the order of 10 to 40 years because sometimes it takes science a long time to do what they do. And so here's the idea. A media story comes out. It looks like it's contradicting what you believe. Well, then what you do is this. You, don't, you just feed it back and say, I'm going to wait. I'm going to just relax and let science do its thing because I'm going to share with you, friends, one of the things that science really is good at doing is criticizing itself. And, if, and over time, if in enough time, scientists will eventually see what really happened in this story and they will tell you. And, and then, of course, you will be relieved that you didn't allow that impulse response to drive you away from your faith. So this is the thing I want to share with you. Let me give you an homework assignment or basically another final exam. And that is, I think in 2012, in the summer of 2012, something happened at the Large Hadron Collider, this collider that's over in Europe that's uh, basically running protons around at extremely high speeds and smashing them together to see what they can get. Well, in, they just announced, and I think it was in July of 2012, that this experiment at the Large Hadron Collider had, had run these protons fast enough with enough energy, they smashed them together, and they believed that they saw a, a particle that they did not uh, see before, and they claimed that, wow, this is something new. But guess what happened? The news media got a hold of this and began calling it the godless particle. The article in Newsweek magazine, I happen to have this, this is my copy here, it says, science posits a new story of our creation. Now, after hearing everything that I just shared with you, listen to how this uh, media person talks about this discovery. And you'll learn a few things right here. He goes, If these bold, some would say arrogant notions derive support from the remarkable result of the Large Hadron Collider, they may reinforce two potentially uncomfortable possibilities. First, that many features of our universe, including our existence, may be accidental consequences of conditions associated with the universe's birth. Now, did you notice what he says? He wants to explain design with what? Chaos. That's right. This is the game. All right, let's go on. And second, that creating stuff from no stuff seems to be no problem at all. And I don't believe that's really what happened there. I think that's his interpretation of it. He goes on to say, everything we see could have emerged as a purposeless quantum burp in space, or perhaps a quantum burp of space itself. Again, explaining design with chaos. Humans with their remarkable tools and their remarkable brains may have just taken a giant step toward replacing metaphysical speculation, meaning the Bible, with empirically verifiable knowledge. The Higgs particle is now arguably more relevant than God. And you can see what this guy's doing here. He's doing two things 
that it comes from this idea of the worship of reason. Number one, he's trying to explain everything with chaos. That's basically the paradigm of atheism and science. The second thing is he's claiming that just because we discovered something, now we have seen what the little seed does. We are now God ourselves. We have now taken on divinity ourselves. Well, I tell you, science can really be proud in the age of evolution. But I want to share with that particular person that wrote that article that uh, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the words were, worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. I guess we kind of agree on that. Anyway, friends, the purpose behind sharing all this with you is this one thing. I personally believe, having worked in science, that science is an exciting field. And I believe that Christians should have a part in science and should be a part of this exciting field. And I know from experience that the way that that can happen for you is if you learn more about science and not less. I hope that this presentation helped you understand science in the age of evolution. And may God bless you. Let me have a prayer for you as we close. Father in heaven, I know that this was very rapid and so many things that went by so fast, but I pray for these people that are watching this, that are really struggling to understand science in the age of evolution, that you have helped them here with this presentation to keep their faith in the midst of a world that's dominated by evolution. And thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you as you go forward and may you go into the fields of science and have faith. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.